Welcome to Prayer Huddle, a community that seeks to host God, influence lives, and revive hearts. The message you're about to listen to is a word in season to make your spirit soar like that of the eagle. Thank you for listening and stay blessed. talking about right positioning. So within the Grace Potentiator series that we've been talking about, what exactly are we going to be, um, what we're going to be focusing on is right positioning. You know, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 said, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And in the, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. So when the writer says that grace and peace can be multiplied unto you. We say that grace and peace have been potentiated. All right, grace is a free gift from God like we learn, but it's something that we can frustrate and it's something that we can potentiate. And so really over the last couple of weeks, we've addressed different topics on this issue. We've talked about some of the different ways we can potentiate grace. But tonight, the focus specifically is going to be on positioning, how we can position right to maximize the benefits of the grace of God in our lives. And it's kind of difficult to talk about a topic like this. Like, where do you even start from? So we could look at it and say, for example, that God is very wise. Now, God is God. We all know that God is powerful. God is all-knowing. He's omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. All those things are true. They are attributes of God, and they are attributes that are honestly unique to God, which is one of the reasons why the Bible describes God as the only wise God. And so... Everything that looks like wisdom, everything that has a semblance of wisdom ultimately comes from God, all right? And God is wise, but God is also very precise. And I think that's one of his qualities that I think I enjoy the most, that God is a very precise God. And when we say that God is precise, it essentially just means that God is careful in how he does things. He thinks very much. He, 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 he pays attention to detail. One of my favorite passages of the Bible is Job chapter 38 from verse 4 to 5 when God was one of the few explicit places I know of in scripture at least where God explicitly just kind of brags on himself basically goes of his own resume when he was replying Job and God said something that I thought was pretty interesting in verses 4 to 5 he was asking Job where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and then in verse 5 he said who determined its measurements surely you know so even creation even that which God did as early as Genesis chapter one bears witness to the fact that God is very detailed, is very measured in how he does things. Now that's important for a couple of reasons because it also leads us to the next point, which is that God has chosen in his wisdom to create different laws and different systems. Now in the wisdom of God, he has chosen to operate himself by some of these laws and he has also chosen to choose different laws to govern what he has created. And so there's a lot of examples that we can go off in the natural. Nobody here really needs an introduction to the laws of gravity, for example, that what goes up must come down. If you're a psychologist, you probably spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, the law of time preferences, social sciences, 
Um, those of you that are into physics, the law of thermodynamics, some of all this fancy stuff, the law of lift for aviation people, even babies, when they grow up, they begin to acknowledge and recognize some of these things. So you would see a baby as they go through some of their formative stages, begin to gain, you know, sense of physics. They know that some objects are heavier than another. They understand that if they push some things that depending on the force which they push them, you know, they can change in different ways. So even just that tactile sense too, it's something that we learn to discover right from a long time. And the Bible also mentioned some of these. For example, in Genesis chapter, um, Genesis chapter, I think one verse 11, the Bible was talking when God created everything, it was talking about the law of reproduction. When God said, let the seeds begin to produce after its own kind, after he created things. In Genesis chapter eight, after the flood of Noah, God said that for as long as the earth remains, there will be seed time and harvest time. So those are all the two laws that we see in operation. And there's just multitudes of multitudes of these things. I don't even know how many there are. It's kind of hard to, to discover all of them in the Bible just because a lot of them are mysteries. A lot of them are things that we progressively come into the understanding of. But one law, one relevant law, at least, and it will be our focus for tonight, is the law of positioning. The law of positioning. What is the law of positioning? So essentially, let's, let's look at it this way. In the natural, when you want to describe the, the location of something, you tend to use it as a, you tend to use it, you tend to describe the position of something on a relative basis. And so what I mean, for example, is that if you speak to geographers or if you listen to people who are geographers or people who deal with a lot of precision as to location and how things like that are concerned, they would measure the location of it. Though they would, the system of unit they use for location tends to be distance from the equator, so longitude and latitude. If, for example, um, you wanted to also describe something to me, you would tend to use landmarks. So let's imagine hypothetically that all of us on this call happen to live in the city of Paris. Say, for example, you wanted to describe to me somewhere that was close to the Eiffel Tower. The name of the street doesn't matter. You may not tell me what that is if you wanted to point me there. But what you would do is that you would look at different landmarks and tell me that where you are trying to find is close to the Eiffel Tower. You will find different landmarks, different you know, monuments, different things to serve as guideposts of that which you are describing. So positioning refers to two things. It answers the question of where you are situated and it answers to the position of how you are situated. The where and the how of where your situation is. Now, I think I spoke earlier on and I said, okay, you know, the distance from the equator is one of the more popular ways people describe the location or describe locations in general. But for Christians, it's slightly different. When you're talking about a spiritual thing, oftentimes one of the reasons why Jesus has taught us turning parables is that he would point to something in the natural and explain the truth of what is going on in the natural and say that, okay, the natural is so because the spiritual looks like this. So for instance, the kingdom of God is like happened many times in the ministry of Jesus, equating the kingdom of God to something that was more um, relatable, something that you and I understand a little bit better. And so this idea of location too, when we talk about spiritual location, we talk about the distance of something on a relative basis as well. We do not measure our location or our position by you know distance from equator, like that if I'm not talking about natural things. But for the spiritual person, for the Christian, your position is determined also on a relative basis, but not to the equator, but to the will of God. 
your position is your distance to the will of God. So his will for your health, his will for your families, his will for your body, spirit, soul, your careers, your spiritual growth, all that pertains to your personhood, all that pertains to your existence, his will for those things is how you determine where your position is. Um, is how you determine where your position is. So if I were to randomly ask one of you today, where are you positioned? I'm not really necessarily asking a loan of where you are, you know, what your address is. I'm also asking what exactly or where are you within the context of God's will for a particular situation? If someone tells you, hey, um, but I did get into position. What they're essentially saying is that you should get aligned with God's will for a particular thing. So God's will essentially serves as our anchor. It is where we must define everything we do from. So the further away we stray from the will of God, the further out of position we become. That is our system of measurement. It is how we measure our growth. It is how we measure our alignment. It is how we measure our surrenders, how we measure all these things. And that is the only way in which things can find meaning. And this is essentially what binds everything we have learned over the last couple of weeks. It's why we pursue spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting. It's why we do different things. It's why we live in the world. It's why we pursue the spirit of meekness. It's why we do all those things that we have covered that we may grow in our understanding of God's will. So for instance, we learned about living in the word of God. The reason why we absolutely have to do that is because the word of God has essentially transcribed the will of God for us to see. So if you are ever really in doubt on what God's stance is on a particular issue, the word of God is a pretty good bet for where you should go to go and look for information. It's why you pursue disciplines, like I said, like prayer and fasting. One of the things that fasting does is that it helps us as, um, I think Pima was the one that shared that day, it helps us to subdue the flesh and open up our spirit so that we can more easily discern that which we are going through. And so all of these things, all these disciplines, everything we've covered together, all right, is found here that we would grow in our understanding and the degree of our alignment with the word of God. Everything we do, everything we do must lead to this. Absolutely. Every single thing we do must lead to this. It is, it is, it is, it is the, it is the primary thing that we must consider whenever we decide to engage or disengage in anything at all. And so that's that, but it's, it's also a bit of a tricky issue. The will of God as a concept is a bit of a thorny issue, partially just because it, 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 it's a really hairy thing to describe. How do you want to reduce the will of God? You know, John Piper, John Piper, who is one of the most prolific authors in Christianity today, recently wrote a book on the will of God that is close to a thousand pages. Churches, denominations are split in doctrines and dogmas on what the will of God is. Some people believe God's will is, you know, something that, is fixed. Some people believe God's will is things that are variable. There is just so many different ways people have thought, people have considered this. There's so many ways people have approached this topic that I don't even think it's possible to do justice to, to it within the time we have. So we'll take the will of God and take a bit of a general definition and hopefully that will give us a little, a little bit more clarity on. So when we say the will of God for 
the purposes of our conversation tonight, we are essentially referring to anything we do that carries the seal of God's approval. So anything we do that carries the seal of God's approval, we will consider it for tonight to be the will of God. There are different things we know about the will of God from scripture. We know that the will of God is good. We know that it is progressive. We know that it's progressively revealed. We know that it is perfect. We know that it's acceptable. All those things we know can be used to describe the will of God. And why is that important for our positioning? What are the stakes here? Like, why is it even something that we should pay attention to? Why is it worth our time? Why is the will of God a subject that I think we should discuss? Why is it something that's important if we are to maximize grace? The answers are many. Honestly, there's a lot of reasons why this idea of the will of God is something we talk about, but there's two particular things I want to define the importance of that with regards to our authority and with regards to our opportunities. And so, like I said, the will of God is our anchor, it's all these things, but importantly, it is also our boundary, meaning that everything we do must be within the fault lines of the will of God. It is what serves as the as the perimeter for everything that we do. And that's important, especially as we consider the topic of authority. You know, God has given man, quite frankly, authority. He said it many times explicitly, even in the Old Testament, it's explicit in the New Testament too. For instance, when Jesus was saying, I give you authority to trample upon scorpions and they shall not by any means harm you. There's different ways, you know, the Bible makes reference to that. It talks about all authority being from God, even in the natural, talking about law enforcement, talking about them getting all authority being appointed by God. And so authority is something that is written in scripture, but the truth of the matter is, Authority has to be carried out within particular boundaries because everything has a boundary. Everything has a boundary. You know, in the run-up for this particular call tonight, I began to look in the Bible and to see the instances in which boundaries as a concept was referred in the Bible. And honestly, I was blown away by just the sheer number of times where boundaries were mentioned. There were boundaries of people, there were boundaries of land, boundaries of territory, so that's physical places. There were boundaries of objects, like boundaries of temple. Even the holiness of God was described as a boundary. In Psalms um, 78, I think, and verse 54, it talks about God having a holy border. And interestingly, too, the Bible also talks about wickedness, and darkness having boundaries. And that's good news, by the way. It means that whatever it is that has been making you uncomfortable, whatever it is that has made you disturbed has a boundary. It's limited. It can only come so far and not further. So every single thing has a boundary. Even at the start of Genesis chapter one, verse one, and I think Genesis is also a pretty good place to study because Genesis is God's essentially, is God's self-introduction, all right? God does a lot of things for the first time in the book of Genesis. He shows his blueprint for a lot of things in Genesis because that's where they are revealed oftentimes for the first time. And in Genesis chapter one, verse one, when God created Adam, in verse one, God said to Adam, sorry, in chapter one, but verse um, chapter one, four, but I think it's verse 11, when God created man. So he said, let us create man in our image and in our likeness. And then if you scroll down and if you look at, um, if you look, 
when it was talking in verse 26, it said, let, the, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creepy thing that creeps upon the earth. And then in verse 28, God said for the first time to man, remember this was when man was created. Man had no education, man had no preconceived notions, man knew nothing. And so the first thing God said to him was be fruitful, and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is often what people refer to when they say the dominion mandate of you know man, because God gave this command very explicitly to man. But the interesting thing is that God told them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. They were to fill the earth and they were to subdue it. God created in Genesis chapter one, verse one, the heaven and the earth, but they were not to fill both the heavens and the earth. They were bounded to fill the earth and to subdue it. If Adam had tried to take that authority to fill the heavens and to subdue it, he would have violated his authority. As early as Genesis chapter one, God was showing us how he defines boundaries, how he takes things and gives commands and tells them you must operate within a certain radius. There's so many parallels you can think of in the natural. If you think of law enforcement, for example, not every law enforcement officer can enforce every single law. You know, they are specialized. They have to work within certain things. If, for example, someone engages in financial fraud, you cannot call, you know, just anybody that is a law enforcement. You have to call the Securities and Exchange Commission. If someone violates something with regards to like healthcare, patient data, all that stuff, you don't call a state trooper. You have to talk to HIPAA and all those people. So different people enforce different laws and not even everyone can enforce a law everywhere. So they are bounded by jurisdictions. For example, in the US, law enforcement in the US can only enforce US law on US territory. They cannot enforce US law everywhere. They can't just go everywhere to do what they want to do. There is a boundary that governs the extent to which they can do what they can do. And so our position, our distance, our proximity to the will of God is defined by that area of the will of God. That is our boundary. That is our boundary. And the area and the size of the coverage can differ. God has given authority of different sizes to different people. In Luke 19, there's the parable of a master who, there's a parable of a master who called some of his servants and he gave them mina and he instructed them. He said, do business until I come. When he came, he asked for a report and said, you know, what did you guys do with the mina that I gave to you? Some said, oh, master, I took, you know, the 10 mina you gave me, I traded with it and I took 10 more. But the important thing is that when the master said, he said, well done, you know, good and faithful servant. And I said, have authority over 10 cities. Another person, God gave them authority over five cities. They all had authority, but the degree to which they could exercise their authority differed based on capability. The Bible never made clear to us and said what the prerequisites, what the criteria for assigning that kind of authority was. We don't know what exactly it was that God looked for, what that servants looked for when he gave them different authority over different cities. But we know that there was definitely that idea that to each one there has been given a size, to each one there had been given an allocation and they had to operate within that. And it's so, it's, 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 it's absolutely important for more reasons than I can even think of. You know, there is a particular way that God anoints those things that are within his will. Whenever I find myself praying prayers like, oh God, bless the works of my hand, bless this, bless this. One of the things that I'm quick to remember is that if only I can receive God's will, 
I won't have to pray those prayers to the same extent because everything that comes from God is blessed from conception. So there is even just the way that God backs up those things that come and proceed from his will himself. It is easier to enforce your authority when it's within the will of God. Instead of trying to bring something externally and find a way to fit it within the will of God, toiling is harder then. You would struggle much more then. You would face much more problems. It's just going to be a much more difficult scenario for each and every single one of us. If we want to maximize grace, if we want to be effective, we must operate within the boundaries of our authority. The second reason is important is because of the implications on our opportunities. Our opportunities and our harvest are not present everywhere. They aren't. I don't really see a lot of biblical precedents for that. There are two reasons. There are two examples that I can think of right now of the state of, you know, of the, you know, that I can think of with regards to opportunities. The first one is with Paul, Paul the Apostle. So Paul, one of the pivotal members of the New Testament church, the early church, God had, Jesus had given them a command to be his witness, to be his witnesses everywhere, to Judea, to Samaria, to all the ends of the earth. That all happened in Acts chapter one, verse eight. Yet Paul, despite all he wanted to do, despite the zeal he had for the Lord, he had a great and effectual door in one place and it was forbidden for the Holy Spirit for doing something else in another place. The mission was the same. What he was trying to do was the same, but the results were different depending on where the location was. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul was talking to, Paul was in one of his letters to the church, Paul was saying something um, important. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 from verse, 1 Corinthians 16 from verse eight. He says, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost for a great and an effectual door has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Paul was saying that a great and an effectual door had been opened. Earlier in the chapter, they were talking about the, how the church was spreading, how thousands were being added to the church. And Paul was saying that in this particular place, there has been a great and an effectual door has been opened unto me. Yet we see Paul again in Acts chapter 16 from verse five to eight. The same Paul, the same mission, the same Lord he was witnessing, the same message they were carrying, the same gospel they were spreading, the same thing they were trying to do. It says that when they had gone into the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. What they were trying to do was noble. There was nothing wrong with what they were trying to do. What they were trying to do was, in fact, commanded by God. But God effectively said, at that point, the Holy Spirit forbade them for moving into Asia because the harvest is not everywhere. There are specific places that God has appointed for us. And it is our distance to those that yield results. There are places that God has created. There are subsets and portions of God's creation that God has given to us. And it is when we are there that we can reap the harvest. The harvest is ready. The harvest is ripe. The fields are white already. Well, we cannot go anywhere to try and pick a harvest. We have to go to where God sends. The message in the, the chapter in the Bible that I think encapsulates this perfectly is Elijah. Elijah in and the story of his of, of, of the brook Cherith. Elijah tends to be almost everyone who, you know, anyone you know who likes the ministry of the Holy Spirit, if you ask them, Elijah is probably one of their favorite characters. If they don't like Elijah, is Elisha they like, and Elisha carried in Elijah's mantle in a greater degree. But Elijah was by many means, he was one of the most prominent prophets of the Old Testament. He did so many miracles, he healed people, he raised the dead. Elijah was he was a fireman. 
And he did something extremely happy, something really important happened in 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17, the context was this was Elijah was a prophet within the reign of a king called Ahab. Ahab was a king God didn't like very much. Uh, Elijah himself prophesied a drought. Elijah said it by his mouth in verse 1. He said, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain in these years except by my word. Elijah said it. He said it. But in verse 2, God now told him, I said, get out away from here, turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows from the Jordan. And it shall be that you shall drink from the brook and I have commanded ravens to feed you there. God told Elijah that I have commanded ravens to feed you there at the brook Cherith. Not only were ravens commissioned to feed Elijah, they were commissioned to operate within a particular place. If Elijah had gone to anywhere else, he was in Northern Israel where this happened. If he went to Southern Israel, if he went to the Middle East, if he went to East Africa, anywhere else, he would have missed this opportunity. If he went to a neighboring brook, he would have missed the opportunity because the command was for ravens to feed him in a particular place. Ravens could not have fed him anywhere. God said, I have commanded ravens to feed you there, there being the brook Cherith. And that's, that, that's, it's such a strange concept to think about. Why didn't God invite the ravens to come and meet Elijah where he was? Why did God send him to the brook chariot? What was it about that brook chariot? Why was God even so detailed, so particular around that? Why did God have to specify it that way? What would have even happened to Elijah if Elijah went somewhere else? Whether he went there by land, by air, by chariot or fire, by disappearing and reappearing, however he went there was not the question. For as long as he went to where God had commissioned his opportunities to be, he would have partaken of it. Anything he did outside that, he would have missed from it. That caught me. I, I, when I, when I, saw, I was so shocked when I found that place in scripture. How could that be? Why? 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 I have no answers, to be honest with you. I still don't think I have an answer to that. But it's super important that we are conscious of it. And so what should we do now? How do we... How do we now get into alignment? We've spoken about the will of God. We've spoken about the will of God as an anchor, the will of God as our boundary. We've spoken about why it's important for us if we are to effectively enforce authority. We've spoken about why it's important for us if we have to see opportunities. How do we then do, like, what do we do? Where do we go from here? The most important thing we can do, to be honest with you, to increase our alignment is to surrender. Surrendering is not really a concept that, that is easy to even talk about, partially just because, you know, if you say to people, you know, go and pray, it is okay, I'll go and pray more. If you tell them, go and fast, I'll go and fast more. But when you say go and surrender, what does that even mean? Like, what does surrender even look like? How do you surrender? Where do you see surrender being explicitly taught in scripture? What do, like, like, surrender what exactly? What do you surrender? How often do you surrender? It, 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 it's a bit of an interesting concept. But surrounding basically is that we must ensure that everything that we are, everything that we have, everything that is given to us comes under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If we are to remain in the will of God, if we are to align with the will of God, we have to be ruthless about it. And the truth of the matter is that God himself is aggressive about it. When God sees something in our lives that is beyond his will, God is ready to bring that under it. Under it. God is not, you know, God is not, he's not pleased with 90%. He's not pleased with 95%. He's not even pleased with 99.9%. 
He wants 100% of everything we need to do to come under his will. That is why the most important and the most useful person to God is a life that is surrendered. The most potent place you can ever be in your life is to surrender entirely to God, to surrender entirely when it makes sense, to surrender entirely when it doesn't make sense. You have to trust him in the night. You trust him in the day. You trust him every step of the way. You trust him when we don't have all the answers. We trust him when we can't even see ahead. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for God is with us. And it is in that knowledge that we have to trust God. And that is why we must surrender. It's, 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 it's a non it's a, it's a non-negotiable thing to do. You know, I remember when PMAT sometime last year in the run-up to our blaze in December, if I remember correctly, we were having a couple of prayers for, you know, in run-up to that conference. And one day, PMAT was, he was admonishing us out of, on the life of David. And he quoted a passage, you know, he quoted one of the testimonies that, that, that God said concerning David. God said, I have found, this was in Acts 13, verse 32. God said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. I have found in David, a man after God's own heart who will do all my will. Prior to December, I had seen that scripture. I had sang it. I had meditated on it. But you see that portion where it says, who will do all my will? It was as if I never saw it. It was almost, I was wondering, like, where was this in my Bible? I knew David was a man after God's own heart. But that David would do all God's will? Where was that from? What makes that even more potent is the fact that that was God's testimony for David. God, the ancient of days, the one who created and observes the human race, the one from whom nothing is hidden. You know, the Bible says that God sees the hearts, the intents, the thoughts of man. And God opened his mouth and said this about a man that he created, that a man would do all his will, all his will, who fulfill all my will. What a statement. What a statement. And maybe that's why David was the kind of man he was in the Bible. Despite all his many fallings, I feel like there's, there's, not, there's not a lot of people in the Bible that we so exhibit the level of intimacy David had with God. David was a man who had experiences that were beyond his time. They were beyond his dispensation. They were beyond his covenant. David had very many glimpses of the New Testament, yet he was a man who lived under the Old Testament. First Chronicles chapter 18 talks about the many battles David won. I don't, there was no record of David ever losing any battle there. I don't know of any part in the Bible where it says David ever lost a battle. It may be the case, I haven't necessarily said necessary, but I can't think of a single time where the Bible records that David ever lost a battle. All these things David did and what God chose to say concerning him, of all God could have said about his life, God could have literally taken anything David expanded upon in the book of Psalms. God could have taken any of his hymns, any of his songs, any of his spiritual songs, any of these things to talk about. But God's testimony on David was that he was a man after God's own heart and who fulfilled God's own will. Why is it that God cares so much that a man will fulfill his will? Why is it that God cares so much that you are yielded and surrendered? The answer is honestly because God trusts himself. Remember when God was going to make a covenant and he said that um, by two immutable things is a thing true. And because God could swear by no greater, God swore by himself. So when we yield, when we trust and when we surrender, we give God room to work and God can trust himself to do what he wants to do. And that is why God loves it. It's why God is active about it. It's why God is almost, if, if, if it was a man we're talking about, we'd say the man is fanatical about it. But it is why God cares so much 
because God has so much he wants to do. There's so many things that God wants to do and the space we give to him is what we, is this the flexibility with which he can do things. What else should we do? We've prayed, you know, we've yielded, we do, we, we've yielded, we've surrendered, we've been people after God's own heart. We must also pray for the will of God. Prayer is a way you can actively ask for the revelation of God's will. I wanted to share, so one particular scripture that has been super useful for me for countless years, I've prayed it many, many times for a few years, is Colossians chapter 1 from verse 9. Paul was praying this for new believers, so it was a prayer for believers. You know, sometimes when people want to talk about scripture, they'll, you know, we find different ways to dance around it. We'll say, oh, Paul said this to unbelievers, so it doesn't apply to us, or, you know, things like that. But this one was a clear-cut, cookie-cutter way where we see Paul pray, and he was praying this to believers. Paul prayed something. He said, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we cease, we do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful unto every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering joy. Verse 9 is where we're really focused on, that God will fill us with the knowledge of his will in all spirit you know, wisdom and spiritual understanding. These are people that had the Holy Spirit. Paul didn't necessarily pray for the Holy Spirit. They had the Holy Spirit. But even with the Holy Spirit, Paul prayed that they will be filled with knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. How would our lives change if there were many things where we had knowledge of God's will in? I agree to you. I, I know I've seen it in my life that sometimes it's hard to discern the will of God in a particular issue. But that must never stop us. This is a prayer and this is a chapter that I pray. You know, at some point I was praying it, I think it was every day or so, that I'll pray that, oh God, fill me with your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. When there's something that you are confronted by that doesn't make sense, something you're looking at that you don't understand, this is a prayer that I pray very frequently, that God will fill us with his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. If we end there, um, we shall, and we shall close there. But let I would encourage you, even as we, you know, close prayer huddle, if we get a chance to pray, I don't know what that might look like, but if we do, pray this prayer too, that God fill me with your knowledge of your will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You see, it's important for us to be honest with God. We have to have that transparency of heart. If we don't know, we should ask. James said that if any of us lacks wisdom, let us ask of God who will not see. God will make fun of us for not knowing. And God knows when we don't know anyways. It's not like we can necessarily impress him with the degree to which we, we know because he sees, you know, he sees beyond that which is on the surface. So we must pray constantly. Fill me with the knowledge of your will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Thank you very much, and God bless you. Pimat, over to you. Wow, hallelujah. I just want us to take a minute and just exhort the Lord for this word tonight. This is such a powerful word. This is uh, a gold mine of deep revelations. Lord, we thank you tonight. We just appreciate you for your word. And Lord, I pray for every one of us on prayer huddle tonight who has come under the influence of your word tonight. I pray that the enemy would not steal this revelation from our heart, that you have ordained us to live a life of authority, to, to dispense that authority within the boundaries and the confines of your will. How shall we know your will if we don't seek it? 
and the, in the opportunities that you create in our lives. I pray that from this night going forward, none of us will waste the opportunities that God continues to present in our lives to discover his will. And maybe there are people here tonight who are saying, I have struggled for years with God's will. I've lived in the permissive will. And if there's no other way the enemy can waste a glorious destiny than shipwrecking them out of God's will. No other way to exhaust a man's heavenly resource, grace on his life, than to have him struggling outside God's will. I begin to pray for everyone tonight that, Father, there will be cost correction. This word will bring a shift in our mind, a shift in our spirit, a shift above all in our positioning, in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your authority. Elijah said, before God whom I stand, I decree that there be no rain over Israel. Father, Lord, help us to be dispensers of your authority like that. In every area of our lives, in our family, in our spiritual work, in our ministries, in our callings, in our relational sphere, in the name of Thank you for listening to this message. We love to stay in touch and to see you at one of our events. You can find out more about us on our website at prayer-huddle.com. Email us at feedback at prayer-huddle.com or on our Instagram at prayer underscore huddle.